Hello and welcome to Perspectives, a podcast where we explore geopolitical perspectives on today's challenges. In this first episode, we will be talking with Professor Jacob Mundy, an expert on the Western Sahara conflict, co-author of Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution. This conflict, although major in the lives of thousands, is often overlooked on the international scene, which is why it's such a pertinent issue for Perspectives' first episode. Western Sahara is a territory wedged between Morocco, Mauritania, and the Atlantic Ocean, which has historically been inhabited by a nomadic people, the Sahrawi. In 1884, Spain colonized the area, and it remained under Spanish rule until 1975. When this imperial power left the territory, it came under Mauritanian and Moroccan control. A war then erupted between these two countries and the Polisario Front, which is the armed movement for Sahrawi independence. Mauritania eventually gave up on its territorial claims, leaving Morocco and the Polisario Front as the two belligerents. In 1991, a ceasefire was brokered, which recently came to an end due to a skirmish between Polisario and Moroccan forces. Last year, the Trump administration made the decision to recognize Morocco's sovereignty over Western Sahara, a decision that no other country had made. Today, Morocco controls about 80% of the territory, and the Polisario Front controls the remaining 20%. Without further ado, here's the conversation Professor Mundi and I had. Dr. Mundi, thank you very much for coming on. I'll get right into it. I want to start by asking you very briefly, how would you define the conflict in Western Sahara between the Polisario Front and the Moroccan government? What is at stake here? The conflict between Morocco and the Polisario Front is a kind of classic territorial uh, dispute. Basically, you have a nationalist independence movement led by the Polisario Front with their own government in exile, the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, which is a semi-recognized state and a member of the African Union. On the other side, you have Morocco, which has laid claim to Western Sahara since Morocco became independent in 1956. Morocco believes that this is that Western Sahara is a part of a, a larger uh, idea called Greater Morocco. And that idea is basically that prior to European colonization in the late 1800s, uh, Morocco or the state of Morocco or the historical kingdom of Morocco was much larger than the state of Morocco that emerged after French colonization and Spanish colonization ended in 1956. So are Morocco's claims that this land was theirs before colonialism, are they inherently true? And if so, does that give Morocco legitimacy? Well, Morocco put these claims to the International Court of Justice in 1975. Uh, At the time, Spain was the colonial power in Western Sahara and technically still is according to international law, but that's kind of a footnote. Uh, So Morocco was worried that Spain was going to grant the territory independence. And so the historical claim that Morocco had was put to the International Court of Justice. Mauritania had also actually laid claim to Western Sahara as well. So Mauritania was was there at the court proceedings. The court looked at all the historical evidence that Morocco could bring forward. The court considered Morocco's uh, own definition of sovereignty, which is a little bit different than how European states have defined sovereignty. And in the end, the International Court of Justice didn't find any compelling reason to believe that the Moroccan monarchy had ever asserted effective control over Western Sahara for a durable amount of time, 
less so the idea that the people of Western Sahara ever thought of themselves as a part of Morocco. Um, and so when the court's opinion was finally released, it was fairly obvious that the court was not convinced in any way that Western Sahara in 1885, which is the year that Spanish colonialism began in Western Sahara, that in 1885, Western Sahara be, uh, belonged to the Kingdom of Morocco or, or in the centuries before that. Uh, and so the court was pretty unequivocal that Western Sahara's right to self-determination had no other claim on it and that Morocco's historical assertions were were just that. They were just assertions. The court, I mean, as kind of, you know, to, to add some context, the court wasn't even convinced that Morocco could demonstrate sovereignty in southern Morocco, you know, which sort of gives you an idea of how weak right. Morocco's yeah. historical claims are when you get close to Western Sahara. And how are civilian lives affected by this conflict? Does the status quo impede on the liberties of the Sahrawi living in Moroccan-held territory? Well, since Morocco invaded Western Sahara in 1975, it's been uh, a territory that's come increasingly under effective Moroccan occupation. That occupation was more or less solidified in 1987 with the completion of Morocco's defensive barriers in the territory. Uh, And so while on the one hand, Morocco has aggressively tried to develop the territory and to enhance the the infrastructural aspects to make um, certain economic industries more viable in the territory, notably phosphate mining and the fishery industry, which is really the biggest cash cow in the territory, the civilian population, that is the, the native Western Saharans or the Sahrawis of the territory, especially those who espouse nationalist points of view have been subjected to what is often described as one of the worst police states in the world. The human rights organization Freedom House continues to rank Western Sahara as it has for decades as one of the worst of the worst human rights situations in the world. So it compares to Tibet or Saudi Arabia or North Korea in that respect. Uh, And that is to say that there is no freedom of speech when it comes to issues of national self-determination, independence, or even sort of the idea that the Sahrawis are people deserving of special rights. How about refugee camps? We know that there are thousands of Sahrawis that live outside of Moroccan-held territory in refugee camps. How are living conditions there? Yeah, well, the population split roughly 60%, 40%, with 40% going into exile following the Moroccan occupation in 1975. And there, those Sahrawis have lived in four and now five, actually, refugee camps in Algeria. Their numbers today are over 173,000. They live semi-autonomously from the Algerian state. And in fact, they operate their own sort of aid distribution. So it's not a refugee situation that's under international management. There's international presence in terms of UNHCR, World Food Program, Uh, Spanish NGOs, Cuban doctors, (laughs) American language schools, uh, you name it. But uh, the camps themselves are more or less governed by the Western Saharan independence movement and have been. The the primary issues there relate to the prolonged exile and living under a kind of emergency situation, which according to international refugee management standards kind of limits the amount of calories they can get from international aid donors. And anything additional is, is, is just that, it's additional. So they continue to live on a very sort of uh, restricted uh, amount of food, and that's impacted health in the camps. 
uh, greatly. Uh, and so there's been a growth since the 1991 ceasefire of sort of independent economic activity, which has to a certain extent augmented livelihoods in the camps, but more or less they're entirely dependent upon international community for the basic means of sustenance. So how should the international community deal with this situation? What should they do about Morocco's occupation? Well, according to international law, it's fairly clear what what should happen, that Morocco's occupation, because it's a, it's a belligerent occupation, it's an act of aggression. Uh, the primary reason the UN was created was to stop acts of aggression, the expansion of territory by force. We have very few examples of that happening. And the ones that do happen, Crimea or other instances that are quite, um, you know, stick out in our minds, Kuwait, when Iraq occupied it in 1990, Right, that there's been very few cases we can see it in the the world today, where uh, or the world since 1945, where the belligerent expansion of territory by force has been allowed to to stand by the international community. Uh, and normally, it's been opposed fairly vigorously and often with with military force. In the case of Kuwait in 1991, um, so the there seems to be a double standard here uh, going on that, you know, were Morocco not a strong ally of Western countries like France and the United States, I think its its aggressive actions in Western Sahara would have been confronted more vigorously. Uh, the fact is that Western Sahara is officially Africa's last non-self-governing territory, which makes it Africa's last colony. Uh, and so what we have since 1995 is the deliberate attempt to deny an entire country's right to self-determination, which not only you know, flies in the face of the international order that was created after 1945 with the United Nations, but it's sort of, you know, especially for the United States, it flies in the face of the, the fundamental values uh, of our country as well. So in terms of the international community dealing with the situation and the United States' response, what kind of repercussions could Trump's recognition of Morocco's sovereignty over Western Sahara have on the conflict? Does this decision cross a line that represents a new phase of this conflict? Well, the, the biggest issue is it could make the conflict more difficult uh, to resolve. That up until this point, no country in the world had as explicitly as Trump recognized Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. And the fact that it's the United States, the world's most powerful country, uh, that was doing so was further complicating the issue. For a long time, the United States had actually been kind of a pivotal country in terms of the peace process. That The United States right. had led consensus building on the UN Security Council, had been the country that drafts UN Security Council resolutions on Western Sahara, partially because the United States was viewed as, you know, if not 100% neutral on the issue of Western Sahara, at least a country that could be uh, fair when it came to Western Sahara. And so Trump kind of, kind of threw that out the window, and that creates a huge dilemma for Biden as to whether or not to, to de-recognize Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara, or to have to deal with the issue with U.S. neutrality so utterly compromised. Um, and so how the conflict would be managed in a situation by, managed by the Security Council, where you have you know, a member of the Permanent Five. Uh, who has historically been the leader of what's called the, the Group of Friends for Western Sahara, so France, the United Kingdom, Spain, Russia, and the United States, that the United States is so clearly, uh, even among that group, right, it's just, you know, no longer a part of the, the consensus, that the consensus was that 
no one will recognize Western Sahara as its own country. No one will recognize Morocco's occupation. We'll withhold that recognition until there's a, a durable solution. Well, Trump kind of threw that out the window. And so whether or not uh, the United States can go forward as the, you know, as the kind of backbone of the peace process uh, remains to be, to be seen. So do you think that the Biden administration will act and reverse Trump's decision? Or do they have too much on their plate and they'll just accept this new status quo? Yeah, well, I would like to think that they would be proactive about the issue. They've indicated that they're reviewing what, um, in terms of all of these sort of um, side agreements that came along with the, the Abrams Accords uh, to create peace between Israel and the Arab states. And so this, this recognition of Western Sahara is one of those side deals that the Biden administration has indicated that it is reviewing. So that um, in doing that review and thinking very hard and clearly about the consequences of uh, maintaining that recognition, and of course, the consequences of, of you know, rescinding that recognition, which will obviously affect U.S. ties with Morocco to a certain extent. Morocco has always been quite willing to leverage its close military cooperation with the United States, not to mention diplomatic cooperation and intelligence cooperation and things of that sort. That Morocco has always been willing to kind of threaten those relationships whenever its, its interests in Western Sahara have been threatened. Um, but so the Biden administration has to keep that in mind versus being this, you know, the United States is going to be a huge outlier in the international community when it comes to the issue of uh, Western Sahara. I worry that, as you say, that they're so busy with so many other issues and the, the kind of, you know, wanting to focus on China, wanting to resolve issues with Iran and get out of the Middle East, um, having to deal with sort of issues that flare up here and there that they're not going to be in a good position to, to make a decision either way, but hopefully they won't do what has often unfortunately been the case uh, with the past administrations, especially the Obama administrations, that they've been quite reactive uh, and that when they've needed Moroccan support, they've given it and not realized the extent to which um, in giving Morocco too much on Western Sahara, uh, it's actually made the issue more difficult to resolve. And so not rescinding this proclamation will make the issue very difficult to resolve because Morocco can now say, well, you know, why should we why should we compromise anything when the most powerful country in the world recognizes our sovereignty over the territory? Uh, what what sort of tiny concessions Morocco was willing to make before in terms of, you know, granting the territory its own sort of self-governance to an extent? Uh, that that's not even in the in the cards anymore because you know if the territory belongs to Morocco then why why should they compromise? Right, and to move away from the United States and more to that region, how would you define Algeria's involvement in the conflict? Algeria has certainly been an important actor in the conflicts. Um, Algeria and Morocco, when they both became independents, uh, first Morocco and then Algeria. They immediately went to war with each other over a border dispute uh, along their, their shared border. Um, and even recently, tensions have been flaring up again uh, over certain, uh, um, you know, even small palm groves that are contested between them. Um, and so the, uh, the issues that faced them were almost resolved, but then the Western Sahara conflict erupted in the mid-1970s. And Algeria's biggest concern there wasn't that 
uh, you know, they weren't, you know, a huge supporter of Polisario to begin with. And they later kind of came to become Polisario's major supporter. But Algeria was more concerned about the fact that uh, through a kind of conspiracy of Spain, the United States, and other powers, that Morocco had been allowed to take control of Western Sahara without Algeria's kind of blessing or permission. Algeria felt that this was not only a kind of strategic threat to its, you know, uh, southwestern flank, uh, right. but that, you know, they they couldn't stand the idea that, you know, that, you know, Spain and the United States ha- and Morocco had redrawn the map of North Africa without Algeria's blessing. Uh, and so initially, yeah, Algeria was quite keen to support Polisario's war against Morocco because it could help kind of counter uh, Morocco's expansionism um, to the south. Uh, rhetorically and ideologically, right, this uh, Western Sahara nationalism means a lot to the Algerians because they also see within Western Sahara nationalism a lot of the values that that root uh, Algerian nationalism. So whereas Moroccan nationalism tends to be very much rooted in the monarchy and history and, and things like that, Algeria's nationalism is rooted in the struggle for independence from French colonialism. And so right. the Algerians, the Algerians see in Polisario a struggle for independence uh, to re, re, regain self-sovereignty. Uh, and so it's also that sort of ideological aspect. Um, now, the question often comes up is, you know, is Polisario uh, just a kind of you know, militia created by Algeria, and that's just really ridiculous. But um, it's true that, you know, most of the military equipment, most of, um, well, a significant portion of the humanitarian aid that, that supported the refugees has come from Algeria. Um, and so Algeria has been certainly materialistically, diplomatically, politically, and militarily the strongest supporter of Polisario. But I certainly wouldn't say that they created out of thin air Western Star nationalism because Western Star nationalism predates uh, Algerian interest in supporting it. Um, and so uh, certainly the conflict would look radically different than it looks now, but Algeria has certainly played a very pivotal role. And do you think that in the near future, the conflict will continue to escalate as we see that the ceasefire that was in place for almost three decades recently ended? Unfortunately, I think it will. The UN is being very quiet and not barely even acknowledging that things, you know, that there's armed clashes or um, recently we got news that Morocco using some form of air power, whether it was a drone or an F-16 aided by a drone, um, you know, with or without Israeli assistance, uh, we don't know because the UN, the UN, ceasefire monitors can't confirm anything, which is really quite bizarre that you have a 200-person strong UN observer force in Western Sahara, and they they can't even confirm anything. And that gives you a sense of how timid their mandate is. Um, so the UN is, is barely acknowledging that this is happening, and that's creating a situation where, you know, Polisario, I think originally when they broke, um, well, there's disputes as to who broke the ceasefire, but uh, they claim Morocco did, but Polisario is the one who's been conducting uh, on a daily basis uh, attacks against Moroccan positions. Uh, and I think initially they calculated that this would bring, uh, um, that this would signal how uh, how much they had grown tired of the peace process, how serious they were about returning to armed struggle, and how much attention the issue of Western Sahara needed. Unfortunately, it's been virtually ignored. The international press has, you know, turned away um, 
following Trump's proclamation. There was a little bit, little bit of attention, but not much after that. Um, but so Polisario had hoped that uh, resuming armed struggle would lead to uh, renewed attention to the issue, but the Security Council has has barely done anything. And it was only because of German pushing at the end of December that anything was done. There will be a review, a technical review in, in April, but I doubt much will come out of it. So I think the more that the the issue of Western Sahara is ignored by the international community, uh, the more that I think things will escalate because, um, you know, with this first sort of major Moroccan counterattack, Polisario, I think, will will feel the need to escalate in some way to to signal how serious they are. And and yes, the problem problem could spiral out of control and that Polisario was using armed uh, attacks to try to uh, refocus international attention on the you know, dilapidated state of the peace process. Uh, but at a certain point, the war just could become the only thing that Polisario is interested anymore. Um, and that, you know, having failed to get any international attention by resuming armed struggle, there's not much left to lose by escalating it. So a yes or no question. Do you envision a solution to this conflict? <laughs> well, I, I've envisioned a lot of different solutions to this conflict. Uh, do I see one in the near future? No, not unless the United States makes it a top priority. So do you think the biggest hurdles of peace is the way the United States and European powers have approached this issue and their policy towards it? Yeah, I think I think Western Star is actually very low-hanging fruit in the international system. I think it could be resolved with enough will um, by the United States, get France on board, get a good, tough negotiator, set a timetable, uh, learn lessons from uh, why the peace process hasn't failed in the past, and think out of the box when it comes to final status options. So do you think that the Polisario Front would be satisfied with autonomy in Western Sahara under Moroccan sovereignty? Well, Polisario uh, did agree to a plan in 2003 that would have provided for an interim autonomy period of four to five years with autonomy as a final status agreement. So Polisario in some way has indicated that they would, uh, under certain conditions, accept uh, autonomy as a final status uh, were it included within a larger package where they felt comfortable uh, that one, everyone, including Morocco, would be held to their to their promises and that the international community would be overseeing the process. Um, the thing that they would not agree to is uh, a situation where the you know, autonomy is sort of created, the refugees return home, uh, and the international community leaves, and then in six months, Morocco just you know reverses the autonomy and you know and imprisons everyone they don't like. So their biggest concern, I think, is whether or not the international community is invested in a solution. Whether that in, whether that solution is autonomy is something more advanced than that, or something we haven't even thought of yet. And we know that today more Moroccans live in Western Sahara than Sahrawis. What would a resolution of this conflict look like for them in the um, in the unlikely scenario of total independence? Would they have to immigrate to Morocco? 
Well, Polisario has put forward a proposal where Moroccans could obtain residency uh, and possibly citizenship down the road. Uh, and that would sort of facilitate the ongoing sort of international linkages that exist between Moroccan populations who live in Western Sahara and their, where they live. Um, there's also sort of, we, you know, you can disaggregate through different kinds of Moroccan settlers. There are some that are there just uh, seasonally for different kinds of work, especially in the fisheries. Some are there just as kind of families that are attached to um, the military. There are some there that are based in Western Sahara in terms of their business, you know, maybe a hotel, a restaurant, a store, things like that. But their real, the real home is is somewhere else, right? So it's, it would sort of, um, it would depend on what kinds of Moroccan settlers you're talking about. But it's nothing like you have in Israel and occupied Palestinian territories where you have very ideologically motivated settlers who you know believe that the West Bank is historical Judea and Samaria and that they have they have a mission to colonize it. You certainly don't you don't have that kind of ideological drive uh, with Moroccans. You know, a lot of them there are in Western Sahara for necessity or economic opportunity or uh, different different kinds of reasons, but uh, it's not impossible to think of ways in which uh, you could incentivize um, uh, the or create some sort of peace package where it would be possible to facilitate uh, their staying for a while, or or who knows? I mean, Western Sahara is one of the least populated territories in the world, so right. to be a viable independent state, it's going to need it's going to need Moroccan settlers and uh, or you know just population um, and Polisario is well aware of this fact. Well, Professor Mundi, thank you very much for uh, coming on today. It's great being with you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. This has been episode one of Perspectives with guest Professor Jacob Mundi and host Josh Hillman. Please stay tuned for upcoming episodes.